Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. Ephesians chapter 6. I know that last week I finished Ephesians, and so we're not supposed to return, right? Um, but there's one message on the armor of God, and there are a lot of things on the armor of God that I've been thinking about. Um, but one message really that I feel like I haven't preached, uh, maybe I've said this, uh, and so if so, it'll be a lot of repeat, and you can you know, ease your mind about falling asleep in the service. You won't feel quite so guilty like you missed something. Uh, but I'm, I, I don't think that I've covered this, at least not in one place at one time, that I want to talk about, and that is how the armor of God helps us to be holy. The armor of God is there for a purpose, and it's not just a curiosity that we should know what the armor is and how it operates and how it works. It's there for a purpose. God wants us to be holy. Paul, in in the middle of Ephesians, lays out really the goal um, for Christianity, but that is happening, is taking place through uh, through the administration of the church, the blessing of being part of God's family, but not just God's family, being part of the assembly of believers, which is the body of Christ. That's something different than the family of God there. They're not equated in Scripture. And so there is this this goal here, this product that God is looking for in us that is described in Ephesians chapter 4, where where God talks about the gifts that he's given to the church, where he... Um, led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And of course, then we know that there are the ancient gifts of the apostles and prophets, which are the foundation uh, of the church and the doctrine of the church uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then there are the um, the recent, the, the present authorities or gifts, I guess we would say, uh, that God gives us, which is uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers, pastor teachers that are given to us and through them, God has a particular goal in mind and that is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now this is what God is aiming for. In Ephesians chapter 5 then, he, Paul goes into uh, a lot of detail about your present relationships. Husbands and wives and parents and children and servants and masters and talks about what this looks like in those relationships, what is supposed to be happening. But this is the goal that this measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that God wants to be formed in you. I think even of Ephesians 2 and verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So this is, this is what God is aiming at. And so here at the end, if you're feeling overwhelmed by the, this high calling, this unbelievable, seemingly impossible goal that I, as a fallen man, a sinner, should think that I could ever measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are far more more tempted to dismiss it as pie in the sky. Impossibility for us. An impossible goal. Like if I stood up here and preached to you, now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to teach you tonight how every one of you can be a self-made millionaire. And, and then when you sit down and try to do the numbers, what it would take to accumulate, not, not just earn, but keep a million dollars. And how much that is probably has not entered your mind unless you have kept a million dollars. Otherwise, it's especially if you're starting out way out there, impossible. But I probably could be more persuasive with that message than preaching to you 
that the goal and objective of the Christian life and the work of the church in your life is to bring you up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Surely, if you're paying attention, surely then you recognize that it would be much easier to accumulate a million dollars than to measure up to the fullness of Jesus Christ. How are we to do this? And Paul comes along and shows us the whole armor of God and tells us to put it on. So there is a practical purpose, practical use for the armor of God that I want to preach to you tonight. Let's look at Ephesians 6. I'm not going to preach an expository message from verses 10 through 18 because I have done that over the past, I don't know how long, while. Um, But I'm going to just take this one aspect and give you a practical use for it. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Would you stand with me? Let's read this together. Beginning in verse 10. These are the words of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And I was thinking about that, that, um, you know, the, the idea that I could measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ, it seems impossible because in our experience as Christians, it's like climbing a sand dune. That every step that you take, you're losing ground, you're losing inches. It would be simpler except for our lusts. It would be simpler except for our sins. Because we keep sinning. We keep doing those things that contradict Jesus Christ. And that prevents us from measuring up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so the purpose of the armor is that you might be able to withstand in the evil day, the day of temptation, and having done all to stand. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this armor. What a gift of grace that you've given to us. You've given, Lord, everything necessary for life and godliness. And I pray that we would remember that and that we would learn to look to you and rely on you so that we might overcome the lusts of our flesh and of our mind. I pray that I would be able to present the the truth of your word tonight in a way that is both instructive and encouraging and that our people, our church would receive the word gladly. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. When I was a kid, I learned the hard way. Um, the kind of setup game that kids kind of sometimes play. You know what it, what I mean by a setup game, where someone is offering to do this game with you, a, a little contest, and you discover too late that you were being set up. Here was the setup game. It was popular in the school I went to in elementary. It was called. Let's see, you can hit the lightest. You go first. I got taken by it once. I've never forgotten. And I won't get taken by it again. My friend, using that term very loosely, 
suggested that we have this hitting contest to see who could hit the lightest. And I went first. And I'm telling you, I mean, it was the softest, powdery, puffest hit ever landed on another person's arm. Had that man not been watching, he certainly would have missed that I had just hit him. I soon discovered that he wasn't very interested in how softly I hit him because as soon as I had laid my very soft tissue paper-like hit on his arm, then he waylaid me. I mean, just socked me as I like left a bruise, a big mark on my arm. I was for a moment I was offended by it until everyone laughed, and then I realized that that was the point right there. Of course, he said, "You win." <clears throat> a couple of dads wanted to teach their sons to box, so they got their boys a set of boxing gloves, and they taught them to keep their fists up and. Now, I showed him how to throw a punch, and then they set him to boxing. And, of course, both boys waded into battle furiously. <clears throat> and both boys landed a good punch on their opponent. But both boys also got their bell rung there. And from that po- point forward, both boys pulled their punches. It's amazing how boys, without even saying anything, can come to a very quick agreement, I won't hit you hard if you don't hit me hard. Right? Even so, the fiercer the battle rages, the more timid we are tempted to become. We have this innate sense that if I don't hit the devil too hard, then he won't hit me too hard. We're like the soldiers on the DMZ. Staring across the 38th parallel uh, between North and South Korea. Don't rock the boat becomes the battle plan. The battle is fought with binoculars. Watching the enemy to make sure he doesn't do anything. And making sure I don't do anything that he might interpret as a provocation. We have this innate sense, like I said. That if I avoid doing anything too valiant then the enemy will leave me alone. That may have a lot to do with our fear of failure, the very real suspicion that if I do anything too risky, I will be exposed as a fraud. Someone will dig into my life and discover something there that will be embarrassing to me and reveal it to others. And of course, we all know that this is how the game is played, right? Um, That if you take a strong stand, publicly and you get attention with that stand that someone is likely to dig into your history and discover what they can about you and slander you if they can slander you with facts that's always better than if they have to make it up but if they have to make it up they'll make it up no doubt we have all had this experience also of setting out to do some great thing and failing in a spectacular way. People may still be laughing about it, maybe even out loud around dinner tables in other places. And so we consistently seek to avoid any risky behavior, you know, like taking a strong stand for anything or going to war, going to combat um, with our faults, our sins, Our failures. We don't want to do anything for Christ that's too public or that risks drawing attention to ourselves and our Christian commitments. Uh, Back when in our city here, when we um, stood against the LGBT uh, uh, demands in Ogden, um, the very first and most predictable response from the LGBT online and in their printed material, uh, was to suggest that I was, in fact, a closet homosexual. Because why else would I speak out against it, right? That's what they thought. The world has seen enough uh, spiritual frauds who vocally oppose sins that they secretly committed 
that they are skeptical. And I don't blame them for being skeptical, but when they suggest that our outrage about sin is in fact concealing the skeletons in our own closets, we tend to gulp and worry that this might be the case. There might be a secret homosexual inside of me that I don't know about that's trying to get out. Perhaps Satan has whispered perverse things in your ears. And perhaps he's convinced you that you're just one backslidden day away from total abandonment by Christ. Maybe you've had failures in the past that Satan likes to bring up with you in order to neutralize you. And whenever you set out to do what you ought to do and to honor the Lord, he reminds you of those failures and uses them as leverage in order to keep you from following Christ more fervently, more zealously. Maybe you worry that if you engage the enemy in this or that battleground He'll aim all his fiery darts at you at one time and will overcome you, in fact. After all, dealing with sin in your personal life is, in fact, very risky business. You know, let all the junk settle at the bottom of the cup and then drink very carefully lest it be stirred, right? Before I get to the message then, let me remind you once again, all of this, what Paul says about the armor of God, the whole armor of God is set in the context of Ephesians 5, an immediate follow up to Ephesians 5, which teaches us to follow Christ in all of our relationships with each other. There's a certain safety, I think, in homes and families in maintaining the status quo rather than confronting sin and rebellion and disobedience. It is easier to live and let live even within our homes. I think that attempting to follow God in your family, if you have not been, will be uncomfortable for a while and may very well result in some all-out warfare between husbands and wives and parents and children. I think most Christians are vaguely aware of this, whether we whether we know it and can say it or it's in the back of our minds. We know that if I confront this sin, we're going to go to war. If I deal with this right here, it's going to be a problem in my home. And so we opt for the path of least resistance. We make an uneasy truce with disobedience and sometimes with outright rebellion. And I'm making this point to you tonight that God gives you armor so you can survive the fight and overcome. That is why he gives you the armor. And nobody puts on the armor of God only to sit. Armor was not made for sitting. It's not comfortable for sitting. It's not comfortable, honestly. But make no mistake about it. The armor of God is provided, is supplied to you so that you can join the fight. Join the fight. I, I think that I think that we uh, we know how grievous sin is to God, but we're so accustomed to it. We, we're in contact with it all the time. It's all around us. And it doesn't grieve us. And because of that, we let it go. It's more comfortable to us just to let it go than to go and engage in warfare, to do battle with it whether it's in our own lives, individually, personally, or in our families, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our world. But the battle, my friend, is for holiness. The battle is for holiness. The purpose of this message is to show you that God gives you armor so that you can safely 
engage the enemy. This is why we put on the whole armor, why we put on the panoply of God. I want to show you how to keep that armor in place from day to day so that you can both withstand in the the evil day and having done all to stand. I have four points to make. And the first thing I want to do is go back through the armor. Stand, therefore, girding your loins with truth. That is, be sincere in your pursuit of God. Don't fake. Don't pretend. Don't put on a show of pursuing God, but pursue him and pursue him sincerely. Be honest. Be honest about yourself. Be honest with yourself. Don't pretend. Don't try to impress people that you're something that you aren't. If you haven't quite overcome in a particular area, don't act like you have. Don't pretend like you have. As a pastor, I have to confess that this is a special temptation for me to be or to put on as if I am the master of every spiritual grace, as if I have obtained when I have not. And it's such a temptation and such a dangerous pitfall as well for a pastor, because at some point you're going to discover a failure of mine. And if I have to pretend and put on and have to be or act as if I'm perfect in front of you, I'm not going to be able to handle that when you discover it. So it's necessary for all of us to pursue the truth in sincerity. Seek the truth. Strive to be true. The truth, of course, being God's word. Pursue his word. Hold his word in sincerity with a pure heart. Hold it with a pure heart. Wearing the breastplate of righteousness. We are to stand wearing that breastplate of righteousness. Take time to be holy. Seek to be holy. In every decision that you have to make, be sure that you can be holy in what you're about to do. Your godliness, your efforts to... Um, Please and glorify God in everything to show, put on display the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus that has been given to you so freely. Um, That strengthens you against temptation and the snares that Satan lays at your feet. Fill your heart with the good things of the Lord. Fill your heart. Seek him with your whole heart. Delight in him day after day. Constantly examine your life Confess sin, confess failure, keep short accounts with God. Don't tolerate sin, don't make excuses for it. Don't certainly don't indulge your lust, the lust of your flesh and your mind. Take steps to correct and avenge any disobedience. Set standards in place to keep your feet from straying. That breastplate of righteousness protects your vital organs And that breastplate is made up of the imparted righteousness, the righteousness that Christ is developing, forming in you as you follow Jesus Christ. Then shoe your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The shoes protect the feet. They protect the feet against the enemy, but um, you're not as likely to get your foot stomped on, even in battle, as you are to step on a rock or a stone, or some hard piece of terrain that will damage your feet and make it difficult for you to advance. The gospel of peace protects your feet so that you have the courage to take the gospel into difficult places. You're armed so that you can advance the gospel without getting your feet trampled and mangled, either by the enemy or by the terrain. The gospel of peace prepares the will and the heart to go where God sends us and to suffer what God calls us to suffer. When we have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we are ready to take the field against the enemy and to advance. And since the soldier's first job is to hold his ground and his second job is to take ground from the enemy to advance, therefore the the Christian soldier must constantly prepare himself by learning more and more about the gospel of Christ so that you are developing a deep spiritual understanding of the gospel and then 
by proclaiming it, embracing it and proclaiming it to others. A deep spiritual understanding of the gospel of peace gives the believer sure footing against Satan's attacks. And it provides a soldier with an offensive weapon against his adversary because you are able to do damage with your shoes because they have cleats. Then the Christian soldier stands by taking the shield of faith, the girdle of truth, keeps the armor in place so that the breastplate is not twisted around or riding up and blocking your view and keeping your head from being able to move and so that it's in place so that it protects your vital organs. The the girdle of truth does that. The shield of faith, so that the girdle of truth keeps the armor in place. The shield of faith protects the armor. The shield is for, it's an added layer of protection for the armor itself. It is armor for your armor. And this faith is justifying faith, which, by the way, is a gift of God. God gives us that and which takes hold of God's promises, takes God at his word, rests in his promises, believes to the saving of the soul, appropriates his grace to my need. That is saving grace. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, Satan loves to accuse us. He hurls his darts at us in the form of temptation. And when he lands one of those fiery darts and we succumb to the the temptation, he then loves to parade around our sin like like a, a victim, like a trophy, he, he loves to press the case to, to really expose it and embarrass it like, like Perry Mason in a trial trying to get a conviction. Satan is the master of the gotcha game. We see the gotcha game being played all around us all the time, especially played towards Christians, towards believers. Our shield, the armor of our armor, the armor that protects our entire person from head to toe, that shield is our faith, our confidence in the saving, redeeming, justifying work of Jesus Christ. Justifying faith rests on Christ crucified for pardon and for life. It takes Christ at his word, rests in his promises, trusts him to keep me, to trust my soul to him for safekeeping, and therefore it protects me and all my armor as well. Keep your confidence in the Lord at all times, at any time that your confidence moves away from him. Make sure, make sure that you move it back and keep it firmly Resting in Christ. Rest in Him. Trust Him to protect you from the fiery darts of the wicked one because you can't see when they're coming or where they come from. And those fiery darts are devastating to you. Look to what Christ has already done for you in delivering you from the penalty of your sin And breaking you free from the power of your sin. See that. Consider that. That you can say with assurance. That you are born again. Not based on something that you've done. But based on the work that Christ has done. Which has been applied to you. As indicated by the confidence that you have in Christ. So that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The believer cannot be ultimately lost. Keep that confidence because that's the armor for your armor. And take the helmet of salvation. Make your calling and election sure. Be certain of your salvation. This is why, by the way, we should not be content to suffer through life having doubts about our salvation, if you are not sure of your salvation, please, I plead with you to make sure of it. 
Go to the Lord, plead with him, ask him to give you that peace that passes understanding. Peace you can't explain, but peace that you surely possess. Ask him for that. Trust him. Wait patiently for him to give you that assurance because that assurance is protection for your head and you need that protection. Satan will come at you with imaginations and high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and seek to drive your thoughts away from the Lord and get your mind off of Jesus Christ. And you need that helmet of salvation fitted firmly, securely to your head to protect your thoughts, lest they rebel against the Lord, lest they turn against the Lord, lest they are filled, your mind is filled with doubts, which is Satan's tool, Satan's weapon against you. And take the sword of the Spirit. The sword is a kind of active defense that was that, that we use to assault the enemy, to take the fight to the enemy instead of waiting to see where he'll attack us from next. And we can attack him without fear because our sword not only is used to fight against him, but also for defense, to ward off his blows, to parry against his thrusts. And so you're able to do combat with him by means of the word of God. When we gladly receive God's word and embrace it and live by it, when his word is our life, when it becomes our guide and our counselor, when we apply the word to the unbelief around us, that's offensive. And when we apply the word or use the word to defend against temptations and doubts and fears, that's defense. When we preach the word, and especially the words of the gospel, and rely on the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ to persuade unbelievers of their need of Christ. And by the way, before you can really do well at persuading unbelievers to believe the gospel, you better believe the gospel yourself. So that's your helmet of salvation, making your calling and election sure, examining yourself, whether you be in the faith. when we take that sword of the spirit, then we have armed ourselves. It's too easy to rely on our own cleverness or street smarts to enable us to overcome the unbelief that is around us. It's too easy for us to rely on our personality, to think that we are, you know, such a paragon of Christian virtue and grace that surely people are going to see uh, my good works and glorify my father which is in heaven. And so we think that our light will naturally draw men to the light. But the weapon that God has given to us, both as defense against the skeptics that surround us and the doubters and the disputers, but also for offense against the unbelief that surrounds us. That weapon is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Now, with that being said, Let's go back. We've set before you at once, at one glance, the panoply, the whole armor of God. And so then let's go back and remember why we wear it. Because we're in a war. We're in a battle. We're in a battle for truth. But the first battle, the most important one, is for holiness. Because God has given us his grace, as Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is what God wants from us. This is his priority, that his glory would be displayed in our lives, that his holiness would be made visible In our holiness. Holiness is not our default setting. It is not. It's not an accident. Holiness is not an act of nature. We fall into sin by force of gravity. The way, you know, nobody trips up into the air. 
right? You trip, you fall. The way to holiness is the upward way, winding up a steep, rugged pass over rocky ground and difficult terrain. The way to destruction is a pleasing way, gentle slope, no sudden sharp curves, no sudden drops. You almost don't notice that you're even going down. Have you ever hiked that way for a while and thought, wow, this is pretty easy. I'm in good shape. And then you turn around to go back and realize that you were climbing all that time. That's the way of holiness. And that's why we can drift away from the Lord. But we have to strive to get back. And it's difficult. It's easy to get away and it's hard to get back. And maybe that's why so many Christians have waved a flag of truce with their sin. Because it's easy just to live with the sin than it is to turn around and seek to walk it back. It seems to me that when you leave sin alone and you don't try to fix it, the sin tends to lurk in the background, stumbling you on occasion, but rarely causing you significant embarrassment. Bad habits and sinful thought patterns pester us, but they don't cause too much disruption so long as we leave it alone. We can be at ease in Zion. But if we try to confront a sinful pattern in our lives, that's when it gets out of control. When I decide that I'm not doing that anymore, this is an area of my life where I've been in sin and it's going to change. That's risky. That's risky. It's like if you have a couple rats in your basement, right? Um, the rats will just live down there and peacefully snack on your crackers and not worry about it a whole lot, right? Not worry you too much and stay out of your sight. So you can just, you know, sweep up the little remnants of the crackers that they leave on the floor and throw away the cracker box and, right? But if you leave them, they multiply. Holiness is a battle. The Philistines secure their place in the garrison. And then they're pleased to let you come and go on their terms. But if you try to drive them out, you're going to war. But again, I'm saying to you, that's why God gave us armor. That's why he gave us armor. Because you know you're going to be in a fight. You know, you know that holiness will always cost something. You know that you can't drive out an entrenched sin without pain and suffering and sometimes embarrassment. And we're all a little afraid of the damage that we might suffer. But the armor of God is given to you so that you can go up against those principalities and powers as they manifest themselves in your own life and you can overcome. God gives us armor so that we will not be overcome of evil, but so that we will overcome evil of good. When I was a teen, I heard Jack Hiles preach you can't fall from a crawl. Now, if you know anything about Hiles, he was the master of, he loved a wax poetic and he'd make it rhyme like that. And oh man, you never forget it. I didn't even have to look that one up. I remember it from way, the way back time machine when I was a teenager, back when the world was black and white. Hiles pointed to some of the great heroes of the faith, Samson and David and even Moses. And he explained that the reason that they fell, this is how he said it, 
The reason they fell was because they were running. Because when you run, you're more likely to fall, he said. You can't fall from a crawl, he said. The guy who is doing something is the guy who falls. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret, okay? Jack was covering for himself and for his son as well. And it isn't true that the guy who doesn't do anything for God doesn't fall into sin. That's absolutely not true. In fact, that's absolutely false. That's a fat lie, a big one. And it is not true also that the guy who is doing something for God is the guy who falls. That also is an even fatter lie. It's a big, fat, ugly lie. That's, that's him saying that I fell because I'm doing something. These other guys who are holy, they're not doing anything. And that's a lie. Hiles was famous for this kind of garbage theology. In fact, he, he had, you know, you've seen those guys that can take trash and make it into art. That was Jack Hiles um, with his theology. But his message was popular because Christians worry about this kind of thing. We just do. We worry about burning out. We worry about spectacular crashes. We worry about it. We've seen them, have we not? We've seen preachers fall in spectacular ways. So the reason that Hiles could preach that kind of garbage is because he was touching on the soldier's fear, which is that I'll shame my master. And if I try to do something for the Lord, that puts a spotlight on me and that puts a target on me, exposes me to danger. When I leave the devil alone, he leaves me alone. Or at least that's what people think. But if I take a public stand, I might be exposed. If I speak up for Jesus, I might fail in some public way that brings both Jesus and myself into open shame. But again, again, this is why God gives us armor. This is why he gives us armor. It's absolutely certain. If you go into battle unarmed, you will fall. Great will be the fall thereof. But God gives his people armor. So I want to consider this spiritual armor for a spiritual man. Remember again, the nature of the spiritual assault we face. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The Bible is telling us clearly here that our enemy is a spiritual enemy. And that's why God gives us spiritual armor. I know that we look at the armor of God, we can wish for something more practical. Kind of a how-to manual for becoming holy, confronting sin, and not falling. Right? And then I could stand up here and tell you all my secrets. And you could write that down and say, that's good. I'm going to do that, Pastor. And then we all feel better. But the truth is, what God gives us in his word is super practical. Super practical. But it's not easy. All right? Now look, when they advertise a diet plan, they never advertise how hard it is. You're going to struggle with this. It's going to be hard. You're going to hate it, but you'll lose the weight. They never say it that way. They always tell you you're going to lose like 30 pounds in 10 days and you're going to still eat what you want. Now, you know, again, I'm, I'm revealing secrets to you here tonight, okay? Here's a secret. 
That's a lie. That's a lie. All right. And when you see the guy with the ripped abs who tells you that he can get you those ripped abs in like 10 days without breaking a sweat, that's a lie. All right. You want to get in shape and lose weight? You're going to have to work at it. It's going to be tough. And the armor of God and these kinds of really what amounts to spiritual disciplines here. Not easy. I can't give you easy tips for fighting sin. If you see a book that promises to give you easy tips for fighting sin, don't buy it. If you get the chance, burn it. Throw it away. Shred it. That's garbage. It's not easy. But God gives us armor so we can do it. We're in a spiritual battle, which is why we fear the kind of spiritual assault that we're likely to face when we confront an entrenched enemy, entrenched sin, privately or publicly. I think most Christians have a sense that their Christian life is somewhat precarious. I think we all have this nagging sense that if I let up, I'm going to it's going to go badly for me. We worry about letting our guard down at all. Sometimes we can even become a little superstitious about our routines. Like I've got this routine of Bible reading and prayer. And if I change anything in it, I might lose everything by it. We feel how vulnerable we are to spiritual attack. You know, I can keep my house locked up and keep guns handy and in place. And I can work out and condition and prepare to defend myself against a physical, visible enemy. But when it comes to spiritual assault, I feel naked. Believer, you are not naked. You are not naked. This is why God gives us armor and why the armor is spiritual. God gives us these things to defend against a spiritual enemy. And God gives us these things to give us confidence as we join the fray. The armor strengthens us then in our pursuit of holiness. All these things, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for the feet, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. Make it possible for me to confront the enemy without suffering damage that will kill me or ruin me. Remember again that this is spiritual armor, which means it is real armor. It is real armor, not mystical armor, not theoretical armor. See, this is the way we look at it. Well, the armor of God is a metaphor. And metaphors are not real, we say. No, no. This is real armor, real protection that God gives against a real enemy who attacks you a certain way. And God gives you this armor because it defends you and protects you in the way you need to be protected against the assaults of Satan. These are concrete ways that God's grace is at work in me to strengthen me and equip me and prepare me for battle. As I conquer old entrenched sins, I know that God's armor has equipped me so that I could do so. The armor enables us then to preserve our holiness as we go and confront other sins and other things, the armor of God equips me as I go to war so that the enemy's blows won't do more damage than the sins that I seek to uproot. But when I've conquered and begun to establish a right way of doing in order to replace the sinful way that I was living, the armor is still at work. Still defending me. So the armor is doing its job when I'm standing my ground 
and the armor is doing its job when I am advancing. The holiness that God establishes in my life is protected by the armor of God. The ground that I gain, the growing that I do, is protected and preserved by the armor of God. As I sincerely embrace the truth, that's the belt, right? And seek to establish a practical holiness, that's the breastplate, right? My holiness is protected. As I grow in my understanding of the gospel so that I'm prepared to preach it and defend it, that's my shoes. My own holiness is protected and preserved so that the ground that I have gained is not lost because I've got to nurse my feet. As I take hold of God's promises and take God at his word and rest in his promises and believe to the saving of my soul and appropriate his grace to my need, my holiness is kept as I grow and in a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and gather to myself more of the peace of God that passes understanding. My holiness is preserved as I rest in God's promises and use the means he's provided for the assurance of my salvation. My holiness is strengthened and defended as I use the word of God to answer temptation and unbelief and disloyalty, both in my own life and in my dealings with others, my holiness is preserved. The armor defends us when we stand for God. It defends us. I can be confident when I meet the challenges of unbelief around me. I can be confident. I know that if I stand for God in the workplace... I'll come under the magnifying glass. I know this. People will be looking for me to fail in some way, kind of the way they looked for Daniel to fail, some fault in Daniel. Some might even try to catch you with a sin or set a trap for you even so that you'll sin. But I know that God has provided spiritual armor for me so that their efforts against me won't do me any real lasting harm at all. Let this encourage you, believer. Be encouraged by this. And then take unto you the whole armor of God. Take unto you the whole armor of God. Now this is, this is what I'm trying to say to you. I hope that I'm clear about it. Give attention to the armor. The soldier every day Make sure that his shoes are shined and his pants are in good repair, right? Clean and ironed and without wrinkles, right? That's the modern day soldier. If you were wearing armor, you would be checking for dings and dents and holes and weakness, compromise, compromised parts. You would check it and you would put it on. You're to wear the armor day and night, but you're also to maintain it, care for it, make sure that it is fitted properly, make sure that it is in place, make sure that it is in good repair. And putting on this armor is a spiritual exercise. It consists in rehearsing the grace and power that God has supplied to us. Every piece of armor is spiritual in nature. But as I've been saying, that doesn't make it a make-believe kind of armor. The belt is put on by my sincere pursuit of truth. The breastplate is put on by my striving to live according to the word of God. The feet are shod by growing in my understanding of the grace of the gospel. The shield is taken up by trusting the Lord for my justification, resting in him, keeping my confidence fixed firmly on him. The helmet is put, it, put on by making your calling, my calling and election sure, by examining ourselves, whether I am in the faith, by proving my own self, 
the sword of the spirit is taken by letting the word of God dwell in me richly. Now, putting on this armor of God is a daily exercise. When you open the word of God in the morning, you are putting on the armor and you should be thinking about that. Putting on the armor, making sure that it's well maintained and fitted and in place. Make sure that you don't put it on haphazardly or carelessly. You are in a battle. You're going into battle. Think of yourself on the battlefield, making sure that your armor is in good repair so that you can continue to pursue the enemy. Don't lay it aside carelessly or lay it aside for a time. The significant purpose in your daily devotions is repairing the armor, making sure that it's fitted, making sure that it's securely fastened in place. Putting on the armor of God is a constant exercise. The armor, in fact, comes off by our neglect. By our neglecting that armor. If we're careless of our armor, if we let it take a beating and we don't repair it, it stops doing what God intended for it to do. We must be very diligent about our armor, making sure that it's worn properly, that it fits right, that it isn't compromised, that it isn't damaged. Putting on the armor of God is a vital exercise. Your spiritual life depends on it. Your enemy doesn't rest. He is always, always on the prowl. Therefore, the Bible says, Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this is what our whole Christian life and experience is aimed at. It is aimed at that day of glorification when we'll shed these vile bodies of ours and be glorified with Jesus Christ. And the reason we keep our armor in good repair is so that in the last day, we will be glorified with Jesus Christ. So that brings us then to the last thing that I want to remind you of. Pray always. Remember, prayer is our readiness for battle. So give attention to the armor and pray always with all prayer and supplication. Just as Jesus taught us to pray each day, give us this day our daily bread. Now think about that. Something he has already promised to do for us, he commands us to pray for. Why? Because he doesn't want us to take his good gifts for granted, ever. He wants us to look to him day after day and for everything. Even so, God has promised to preserve us and to keep us, but we must pray. We must pray as Jesus taught, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Even though the Bible tells us that God does not tempt any man, we still are to pray that he'll lead us not into temptation. Even though... By the salvation that's in Christ Jesus, we have been delivered from evil. We are to pray, deliver us from evil. We must pray this diligently. Vigilance in prayer prepares us for the enemy's onslaught, which most of the time is a blind side. Satan doesn't usually announce that Tuesday of this week at 10 o'clock, 
I'm going to throw some good temptations at you. He catches you off guard. Vigilant prayer prepares you for that onslaught. Vigilant prayer arms us for battle so that we're ready. It's impressive to me, like a fireman, how quickly they can be in their outfit, in their gear. It's not really an outfit, but have their gear on and in place and be ready to fight a fire. That's impressive to me. Um, This is the kind of readiness that Christians need to have. Vigilance in prayer keeps us on the alert. It keeps you mindful of the fact that you're in a war, in a battle, that you have a dangerous enemy. Vigilance in prayer keeps us in tune to our commander as as well, and we need to be listening for our commanding officer. Prayer is the vigilance of a well-armed soldier. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour.